We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. A.J. Cole, Pro Bowler for the Raiders, didn't get to punt in the actual Pro Bowl, but he did get to flourish this season under Rich Passaccia, who was the special teams coordinator and eventual interim head coach of the Raiders. Ian Rappaport has reported that the Packers are expected to hire Rich Passaccia as their new special teams coach. Um, the Packers had bad special teams the majority of the season, and obviously a big reason why they got eliminated from the playoffs was they had a blocked punt return for a touchdown uh, in the game against the 49ers. Now, Rich Passaccia will head over to Green Bay to potentially fix the Packers' issues on special teams. But from the Raiders' standpoint, um, what do you make of all the love that the players gave to Rich Passaccia? And now he's gone. Now he had no chance of really coming back. But, like, what do you make of all the love the players gave to him and how quickly they will be over Rich Passaccia? Oh, I think Mark Davis needs to get a thicker skin. <laughs> Don't you? Since he was so hurt by all the players saying one thing in private and then uh, saying another thing about Rich Passaccia in public. Look, Rich Passaccia should still be the coach of the Raiders. That much is on the record for me. Are the players going to get over it? Yep, they're going to get over it because they're getting paid millions of dollars to get over it. Uh, they dealt with John Gruden. And if they dealt with John Gruden, then dealing with Josh McDaniels isn't going to be that big an issue because Gruden walked into the room not only with the massive ego of John Gruden, but very clearly with all of the control of everything in the franchise. So if Josh McDaniels comes in and wants to determine what color water is there, if the Gatorade is green or blue then he can do that, and it's no big deal. I think the Raiders as a franchise are going to find out very quickly what the value of Rich Passaccia was beyond as a special teams coach because the way the players responded to him in the situation that they were in last year shows that the man could lead, and that's what you need from the head coach. You need him to lead. You need someone they believe in and rally around. There's no way that team should have been 10-7 and seven and one Derek Carr interception away from extending a game against the AFC champions. All right. I, it's a guy who's going to coach a football team and make a bunch of money. So it's relative question here. Do you feel bad at all for Rich Passaccia for basically the job he did to, yeah, he got an interview with Jacksonville as well, but basically not have a legitimate shot at being a head coach again next year. I feel badly for Rich Passaccia because of the way Mark Davis jerked him around. Either give him the job or don't. Don't put him through an interview process that makes it sound like, yeah, well, you did a good enough job. Let me just see who else I can bring in. When it's clear that you just had a lust for a guy. You had a lust for Josh McDaniels the same way you had a lust for John Gruden, right? Mark Davis likes shiny objects, apparently shiny objects who will kick field goals in go for it situations. <laughs> and that's what he did. He went and got his shiny object. Rich Pashachia never got a fair chance. He only got one other head coaching interview, which somehow was in Jacksonville. Rich Passaccia did everything that you would need to do as an interim coach to prove that you should be the full-time head coach. And he's a guy who has spent the better part of four decades in the NFL and somehow didn't get the opportunity to continue leading the franchise when it was clear that the players wanted him there. Now, the one argument you could make was that Rich Passaccia was a Gruden guy, right? He was the very first person that John Gruden brought in. And so... Could you make me the case that you needed to completely clear house from anything that had to do with Gruden and Mayock? Sure. But the players seem to be telling us that they didn't think Rich Passaccia was part of the Gruden era. 
I am going to be fascinated in the future to see if Rich Bisaccia, if he has another chance to be a head coach or at least interview like next year when there's six, seven coaching jobs open in the NFL at this time. Is Rich Bisaccia getting interviewed by multiple teams? Are they saying, yeah, you did a great job a couple of years ago when you were interim of the Raiders and the, you turned the special teams around for the Packers. It's just a, it's a weird position because we normally think of like, oh, offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator as that's the guy you're looking at to hire. Special teams coordinator isn't really there. It's not usually on the radar and that's what Rich Bisaccia is. And part of the... Probably part of the reason the Raiders were successful under Passacci is because he wasn't the offensive or defensive coordinator because he sort of allowed, yeah, you guys do your job. I'm just going to sort of try to be the leader here and, and keep this together. I wonder if he gets that because it's not a typical position we see even interview for jobs, the special teams coordinator of a team. Well, as long as John Harbaugh is having success with the Raiders, I mean, with the Ravens, then special teams coordinators are going to get interviews because that's John Harbaugh's claim to fame. Uh, John Harbaugh might be the reason I had to suffer through two years of Joe Judge, who came <laughs> over uh, from New England to the New York Giants as the special teams coach. So Rich Passaccia, I don't think, is going to be in any way hurt by the fact that he's a special teams coach. And what really bugs me is that in a year when we're talking about the lack of diversity in terms of people of color who are getting opportunities as a head coach and we're also seeing a lot of folks who are retread coming back around rich Passaccia is certainly uh, clearly not a person of color but he's certainly someone who has been in the game for many 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 years without getting an opportunity he got the opportunity he did as well as anyone could do within the opportunity and then he didn't get the job because this dysfunctional franchise saw another shiny object to go after are the raiders going to hire joe judge to be their special teams coordinator now <sighs> I have to talk about Julius Randle slapping away laptops and the Joe Judge era within like five minutes on this show. It's not really my day. Listen, the Julius Randle one is all on you. Like, I did not see that tweet you sent to me. That is all. And I'm glad you did. It's a very fun video of Julius Randle slapping a laptop out of some poor guy's hand, just trying to show him a play that happened during the game. But that's all on you. And now Joe Judge, I'll take some blame for Joe Judge. But Joe Judge, he's good, right? Good special teams coordinator. Yeah, I'm sure off the top of your head, you said to yourself when the Giants hired Joe Judge, oh, yeah, those Patriots special teams were always really good. I know why they did that. <laughs> no one knows if special teams are good. How would we know? We have no idea if anyone's special teams are any good. We know when they're bad. We know why Rich Passaccia is going to Green Bay because their special teams lost them a game in the playoffs. But we have no idea if anyone's special teams are good. Do you... Tyler, can you and I evaluate the gunner? No, we have no idea. <laughs> oh, the long snapper seems to have good rotation this week. No, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, the other point on the Raiders here. Do you think in hindsight, A.J. Cole and maybe Daniel Carlson and like Trent Siege, the long snapper, do you think in hindsight they might be a little disappointed Rich Bisaccia got named the interim head coach because... Rich Bisaccia had zero chance of coming back as special teams coordinator after he got named the interim coach because he was the head coach of the team. And, and he, Josh, Josh McDaniels would be dumb from a, a personal standpoint to bring Rich Bisaccia back as the special teams coordinator. But had Bisaccia been the special teams coordinator and Gus Bradley or Rod Marinelli or anybody who had been a previous head coach before on this staff had gotten the interim, Rich Passaccia might actually have ended up staying with the Raiders as the special teams coordinator, and I wonder if anybody's sad about that in hindsight. 
Let me read you a couple of numbers, okay? Four years, $12 million, okay? Keep that in mind. And then uh, four years, $18.4 million. Those are the contracts that A.J. Cole and Daniel Carlson got this season. Rich Passaccia did his job for them. Rich Passaccia got two, these two guys paid by the franchise that loves kickers more than any franchise in the <laughs> NFL ever has. $30 million of money to the punter and the kicker. Rich Passaccia will always have a special place for Carlson and Cole. They don't need to be here to uh, see him anymore. Don't need to be here. I would make the argument, though, that really Mark Davis is the reason they got that money because as we learned last week, Mark Davis is the one that likes to take the points and not go for it on fourth and short. And because of that, both John Gruden and Rich Passaccia kicked a lot and gave Carlson and Cole more opportunities than they probably should have gotten. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you know Daniel Carlson's middle name? Uh, no. Should I? Is it a good middle name? It is a good middle name. Uh, Daniel Carlson's middle name, and this starts with a V. I'm not just putting emphasis on it. Is Wilhelm. Oh. Daniel Wilhelm Carlson. Does that not sound like a guy who should be playing for the Raiders? It does, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that, I, I believe in this. His, his dad is Hans. His mom is Jody. Uh, Daniel Wilhelm Carlson. You would think this discussion was happening like in mid-March, not on Super Bowl week, but it oh, is. This is more important than Super Bowl week. Absolutely more important. AJ Cole is a pro bowler. We just had him eating hot dogs at halftime. This is way Daniel Carlson would be a pro bowler if Justin Tucker weren't alive. Yes, that is accurate because Daniel Carlson, what, it's Daniel Carlson, Justin Tucker, and like Evan McPherson. Those are the three guys you would trust to kick a field goal with your life on the line. Yeah, those are, those are the top three. It's, it's a funny thing that the Raiders, by the way, like, I don't know how appealing this is. If you were listing off appealing things, but like the Raiders special team situation kind of set for a while. Like as far as Josh McDaniels walking in here, he's got a good kicker and a good punter. He didn't have to do anything to get it. And he doesn't have to worry about it for like four seasons because those two guys are both really good. It so scares me for fourth and two from the plus 37. Because what's going to happen here is Mark Davis is going to have a chart for Josh McDaniels and say, <laughs> okay, it's fourth and short, 54-yard field goal. Here, your, your number one option is Daniel Carlson from 54. Your number two option is A.J. Cole corner co uh, coffin <laughs> corner punt. Your number three option is to go for it, and you better not miss if you go for it. Are you suggesting the Raiders would be better off if they had a bad kicker and bad punter? I'm suggesting they would be better off if their owner were not trying to dictate in-game strategy. That would be helpful, but that's not changing. We know that's not changing. The actual kicker and punter can change, though. And maybe if the Raiders had a bad kicker and punter, they, they might go for it. They might decide, eh, this is a good time. We're not making it from 52. But with Daniel Carlson back there, you're making it from 52 most of the time. It's an easy way to go. Just saying. Maybe the owner's the problem, but we're going to have to work away from that because that's not changing anytime soon. All right. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs, and we take a look at Bryce Hamilton's special run. The rules of Scrabble are simple. First, each player pretends to mix the tiles while trying to feel for the letter A. Bischoff's Briefs. The game does not officially begin until one player reminds all the others that the first word scores double. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Bischoff's 
Bischoff's brief. Players then take turns laying down words until someone does a bad job hiding the fact that they drew a blank. Bischoff's briefs. Upon seeing the blank draw, each player must make a bad joke about the tiles in their possession. Bischoff's briefs. Play continues until each turn takes longer than open heart surgery, and the game ends when one person uses the last of their letters. Even though at this point no one likes that person, they're still referred to as the winner. Bischoff's briefs. And that's how you scrabble. Bryce Hamilton is on one of the best streaks that I have seen a UNLV player since I've been here, uh, which is eight seasons now. Had another massive game against Utah State, 33 points on 11 of 21 shooting. He had four threes in that game, also got to the line 10 times. He has now scored at least 30 in four of the last six games. He is up to 24.8 points per game in Mountain West play. And he's he's been efficient doing this. This is not the low-efficiency, high-volume Bryce Hamilton. It's still high-volume, but he's been very efficient in Mountain West play. He's shooting over 40% from three in Mountain West play, which is incredible. Uh, He has been terrific for UNLV, and especially these last six, which, by the way, he's played three of those without Donovan Williams, their number two score. Like, Bryce Hamilton is still having monster games, despite being really the only legitimate offensive threat. You know, he's gotten some good games from Jordan McCabe in there as well, uh, but it's, it's pretty much Bryce Hamilton. You can load up to stop Bryce Hamilton. What I'm curious about is where UNLV fans kind of view Bryce Hamilton all time. Uh, Because right now, Bryce Hamilton has the 15th most points in UNLV history. He's ahead of guys like J.R. Ryder or Greg Anthony or or Anthony Marshall, Reggie Theus, Marcus Banks, like a lot of guys that are fan favorites. Bryce Hamilton has more points. And obviously, he's benefited. He's, He's in his fourth year at UNLV. A lot of those guys play two or three years. So obviously, he's benefited from playing more seasons, but he's still had a terrific career. And here's the thing. If he keeps up this scoring streak, and doesn't even have to be as good as he's been the last six, it's just as well as long as he keeps scoring pretty well here, he's going to shoot up this scoring list. He has 1,566 career points for UNLV, currently 15. To break into the top 10, he needs 133 more points. UNLV has eight regular season games left, one Mountain West tournament game. So if they play those nine, All he's got to do is average 14.8 points per game, and he'll be in the top 10 at the end of this season. If he averages 18 points per game, he'll pass Darlin Johnson for ninth. He would need to average 28 points per game the rest of the way, which is apparently possible given the way he's been playing, but 28 points per game, probably out of reach, but that would put him into eighth place all time. So barring an injury, a uh, long cold streak, or I, I guess we should say COVID knocking out a bunch of games here. Bryce Hamilton likely ends this season as a top 10 scorer in UNLV history. And if he were to use his COVID year and come back next season, I don't know how likely that is. We'll see. But if he did, from right now, he needs 656 points to pass Eddie Owens for the most points in school history. If he played nine games this season, And just 30 next year, which is just shy of a full season, 39 more games. He'd need to average 17 points per game to become the leading scorer in UNLV history. And again, he'd do that having played for five years. There's obviously some context that belongs there. But any way you look at it, Bryce Hamilton 
has been one of the best scorers that UNLV has had. One of the best careers for a scorer that UNLV has ever had. And I'm curious how UNLV fans view Bryce Hamilton. Like, is there anybody out there in two ways? A, just as like best players UNLV's ever had, which I don't think many people would consider him very high on that list. But even just like favorites, right? How many people would have Bryce Hamilton as one of their 20 favorite Rebels? of all time. And a lot of that, I think comes down to like, how much does team success determine your favorite players? Because you know, they haven't had success from Bryce Hamilton's here. They haven't even really sniffed the NCAA tournament. They've had a few big wins, but they haven't really had a whole lot of success. And this fan base has fallen off so much. Like there's so few, so fewer people that are interested in this team now than say 10 years ago. And obviously 30 years ago, but like, if you're still a diehard UNLV fan, right? If you're still the guy that's watching every game play, Bryce Hamilton's got to be somewhere in that conversation. The dude's been awesome for three straight seasons. Like, if you're the UNLV fan that still watches them play every night, this guy's been incredible for three straight years. That's like 90 games you're talking about where Bryce Hamilton has been a really good scorer, a high-level scorer for this team. So I'm, I'm curious to see because Bryce Hamilton most likely is ending up as a top-10 scorer in program history but I feel like most people wouldn't even have him sniffing the top 10, probably not even the top 20 of their favorite rebels of all time. Well, you said he's been one of the best players over the last three years. Let's go to that for just a moment, because we spent two years talking about how Bryce Hamilton, if he is the best player on your team, you're not going to be a winning team. Correct? Yes, that is. They're not an NCAA tournament team unless there's somebody better than Bryce Hamilton on the floor. So then where do you want people to remember him at that point? If Bryce Hamilton is not a player who can elevate your team by definition, then I don't think you should really care where he ranks on the all-time scoring list because the best players are the ones who, by the fact that they are awesome, make their team that much better. So you want to talk about Bryce Hamilton scoring – yeah, he's taking 38.4% of the shots for UNLV this year. That's second in the nation in terms of shot share. If you're going to take that many shots, you damn well better be scoring. <laughs> and so I look at Bryce Hamilton and say, the kid came in and has been handed a hell of a situation, right? Like he's dealing with a third coach. That, which, by the way, that is one of the most incredible details. Like in the era where we don't have kids that stay at school, and UNLV has been notorious for this, where guys don't stay at school for like more than two years. Bryce Hamilton has been here for four and three different head coaches. And that deserves credit all <laughs> on its own, right? Because Bryce Hamilton, knowing that he was coming back to a completely revamped roster this year, still decided to come to UNLV when he could have transferred when he could have gone to the NBA and probably been, what, maybe a fringy second-round pick uh, last year. I think Bryce Hamilton deserves credit for all of those things, but the question you asked wasn't that. The question you asked is how UNLV fans will remember him, and I think what they'll remember is the same way I remember the Yankees from the 80s when I think about Don Mattingly, and Don Mattingly was one of the best players to play in that era, and those teams never went anywhere. Do I love Don Mattingly? Yeah, he was my favorite player when I was a kid growing up. But at the same time, there's only so much he could do. And I think probably say the same thing with Bryce Hamilton, that there's only so much he could do. Yeah, and that's that's the curious part to me is the idea of 
how do you value winning when you're evaluating like your, your favorite players? I'm not even talking about just best players because obviously we factor that in quite a bit when we're talking about who the best players are. And Hamilton's not going to make anybody's list of that because they frankly haven't won anything since he's been here. But just general, who has been your favorite? Because since I've been here, right? Like if if you were a UNLV fan since, you, since in the last eight seasons. Your favorite players in those last eight years, Bryce Hamilton's probably at the top of that list, right? Like maybe Patrick McCall or something like that would be high up there, right? There's other guys that would be considered there, but Bryce Hamilton's got to be there. But nobody has won anything in the last eight years for UNLV basketball. Obviously, this team and this program has a lot of tradition here. They've got a lot of players that have won a lot of things and have been fan favorites. So I am curious on the whole idea of, hey, where do you rank guys that didn't really win a whole lot? Because... That's like you bring up the Yankees, like my favorite Astros players growing up, Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell, they didn't win anything. Like they they went to the playoffs a handful of times, but they never won anything. So like I don't have any postseason memories of them having great plays, which is what you ultimately have here with Bryce Hamilton, that there's some regular season games. There's a lot of numbers and stats there, but at the end of the day, it's not really a memorable career from that standpoint, and it becomes hard to be a favorite. Yeah, and I think back to... Pete Abraham covers the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. He used to cover the Yankees for the Westchester County paper. And he asked a legitimate question one time on Twitter of Yankees fans. It's like, Yankee fans, I don't get it. Why are you so attached to Don Mattingly? Why do you care so much about him? And the chorus, including me, was like, he's all we had. That was it. (laughs) We had nothing else to feel good about. And... Be honest here, UNLV fans. In the last two or three years, Bryce Hamilton's the only thing you've had to feel good about unless you're a local guy who grew up watching Marvin Coleman, right, playing yeah. high school, right? And you're like, oh, I feel good for Marvin Coleman. Yeah. Other than that, there's nothing to feel good about. This program has lost any connection it has to the community over the period of time that we're talking about based on the fact that there's been no continuity in coaching, there's been no continuity in the players on the roster, you had the Golden Knights coming in, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons we've talked about that UNLV athletics are struggling right now. Now, they're trying to do some of the right things to bring people back in. I think hiring Kevin Kruger is an olive branch toward that. But how do you remember Bryce Hamilton from during those years? You're like, oh, yeah, man. Those teams sucked other than Bryce. (laughs) All right, coming up next, we are joined by Lindy the Rock, head coach of the Lady Rebels. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is The Press Box with Graney and Bischoff, featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now, the head coach of the Lady Rebels, Lindy LaRock, the Lady Rebels, on an eight-game win streak. They're currently sitting in first place in the Mountain West. Good morning, Lindy. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's let's start with your last win at uh, Utah State. You guys go in on the road and you fall behind in the first quarter down at halftime, but you come back to win that game by 12. Uh, did you learn anything different about your team from that game compared to some of the previous during this eight-game win streak? Uh, yeah, I think so. You know, it was kind of a, a weird day for us. It was an 8 p.m. game in Utah, and all of the other games in the conference had, had already taken place. So, I mean, we literally felt like we sat around all day. You know, so there was kind of some own adversity that I think we, we put on ourselves. And, you know, there was a couple upsets in the conference. And so I think you, you're always like, when you play last, you like 
you don't want that to happen to you. So, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't always look good or, or even feel good, but to get a conference road win um, with more points, obviously we'll take it. And, and we honestly, we, we didn't play very well, but, um, you know, sometimes those happen and to still find a way to win as a coach, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Linda, your team 79th in the net ranking, 20 spots ahead of New Mexico for the best uh, among Mountain West teams. What in particular about this team has allowed it to thrive this season? Um, you know, we still aren't playing our best basketball. So I think uh, our team is really invested and in all in on just getting better each and every day. And, you know, obviously we have some really talented players. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of new faces, so it's taken a little bit of time for us to really get gelling and, and get together. Um, you know, so I think the biggest thing is is that they're all in for each other, for what we're doing. Um, they trust us, and they just they try to do every little thing that we're asking, and, you know, they continue to improve. So, um, you know, our, I think our, our best is still ahead of us for sure. So one of your leading scorers this year is Essence Booker, who she's from Las Vegas originally, but you got her as a transfer from Ball State. And I'm curious, like big picture for this program, like how important is the transfer portal for you guys on a year-to-year basis for finding players that are going to make a significant difference the very next season? Well, obviously the transfer portal was was big for us this last year and and being kind of a new coach. um, You know, there's different turnover and things that you have to fill spots. Now, once we have players here, we want to keep them here. So, you know, there's not going to be – there's just only so many spots year after year that, you know, you'll use the transfer portal. But, um, you know, I think at our level with Las Vegas and, and you know, how well we're doing, uh, I think we'll continue to attract, uh, you know, top players even. Um, but that's not going to be our, our main kind of recruiting focus. We. We, you know, we have five freshmen this year. We've signed two more freshmen for next year. So, you know, we're committed to the kids that we have here, and we want them to be happy, and we want them to stay. Um, and then when opportunity presents itself in the transfer portal, if there's different timing and things that work out, then we're definitely uh, open to, to, you know, those scenarios too. Linda, you mentioned in there the attraction of Vegas, and I'm really curious your perspective as a native, as someone whose you know roots are in Las Vegas. Um, what did you used to think when people would talk about Vegas as a reason not to want your 17 or 18 year old to be here? Because we've both been here a very long time, and it always kind of it just kind of annoyed me to say, you know, I think people from outside have a very different perspective on that, and it seems now that you and uh, other coaches at the university have embraced the idea of no Vegas is a great place to uh, you know, not only to, to have a team, but uh, you know, for kids to get an opportunity. Well, you're 100% correct, especially in recruiting, you know, and with the young women in particular, that, that is still like the notion of Vegas of, you know, Oh, I got to send my daughter to Vegas and the bright lights. And, you know, I think uh, obviously for our program, it helps that I was born and raised here. You know, one of our, other assistants, Mia Bell, we went to high school together and she's been here the majority of her life. So we can, we can speak to like, well, you're going to be okay. You know? Um, and most of the time, once people get here, they, they, they figure out what we all already know is that it's, it's a small town with, you know, the lights of the Vegas strip and in one little area. And outside of that, you know, it, it really is like, you know, a, a small town or, or any kind of other city. So, um, you know, it, 
for us, we think it's great, you know, because there's very few places, you know, in the country and, and in the world that everyone knows where it is on a map. And Vegas is one of those. And so obviously we highlight that. But then being able to kind of still have, you know, some of the small town vibes and, you know, you can it, it's not all about the strip. Um, and once you get off of it, you know, we like it, it's just a normal kind of residential area to live. So, um, you know, I think we have to we continue to use both sides of that. But, um, you know, I, I'm with you in that sometimes it's it's a little frustrating when that's people's first opinion, but you can't blame them for that. And so then it's just showing them what we're really about. Are you regularly fighting that question from like parents of recruits of, Hey, don't know about sending my kid to Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, that's kind of, you know, it's not always like the first thing, but it's, it's definitely in the top five, uh, regularly. <laughs> uh, Lindy. So, uh, not knowing how much you know about uh, my background, but I, I did radio for 11 years for the Lady Rebels before I handed over the reins to my man Wyatt. Is it mm-hmm. true that uh, Wyatt taking over as the radio guy is part of the reason for your success? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I'll, I mean, that's up for you to judge. So I've only, <laughs> you know, all, uh, Wyatt's been good to us the last, last two years. So, um, you know, I, I I've, I honestly, I, I love the radio. I listen to you guys on my drive to work every morning. Um, when I'm watching games, I like mute the TV and, and find the radio broadcast because I think that's really where where true talent lies. Um, and, you know, getting some of the behind the scenes, especially when I'm scouting another opponent, I learn more from their radio guy than I can do on a, you know, on, on a TV broadcast. So um, why it's been good. And I, I know you did a heck of a job too. You, you know, you stepped up your game here. So I'll, I'll let you be the judge on that one. Don't don't pump him up too much. We don't need no. There's no need for that. This is more. (laughs) Yeah. So, Lady Rebels, their next game is on the road. They're at Boise State on Wednesday, but their next home game is Saturday, February 12th, taking on San Diego State. A couple days before Valentine's Day. Uh, Lindy, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, always happy to be on and appreciate your coverage and excited to uh, keep this going. Yes, thank you, Lindy. So there is Lindy the Rock, and again, next home game is February 12th against San Diego State. They are 18-4 and four this year, 10-1 and one in Mountain West play currently. Uh, first place in the conference. Adam, are you giving them credit for finally uh, you not being on the call for them actually having really good seasons? Well, I, sometimes it is addition by subtraction. I didn't want to put it that way. I was trying to be nice to Wyatt and give my guy Wyatt Tomchak a little bit of credit for uh, you know the work that he's done over there, but I, maybe it was just me needing to give the team an opportunity to grow and thrive by <laughs> by stepping away. I, it, jokes aside, it's really great to see this. Um, the, the Lady Rebels are obviously close to my heart, having spent as long as I did around the program, and what Lindy has been able to do has been absolutely fantastic for not only for UNLV, but for the city, I mean, I've known her dad, Al, uh, Coach Durango, for a very long time. So, you know, I admit a little bit of personal bias in this. But seeing a young coach get the opportunity after training under, you know, under Tara Vandeveer, both as a player, as a coach, under Sherry Cole uh, at Oklahoma, seeing the opportunity she had here at UNLV and the way that she's run with it and the way she's doing it with local players, with Essence Booker and Desi Young uh, at the heart of things, it's really encouraging to see. So last year, her first year, they went 13-5 and five in Mountain West play. They did lose their first game in the Mountain West tournament, but now 10-1. and one. Like, she's 
been pretty much dominant in conference play since Lindy Rock has been here. But that is, by the way, one of the disappointing parts of Mountain West women's basketball is that UNLV, regardless of how good they are here, they're going to have to win the Mountain West tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. Like they can yeah. win the rest of their conference games. They can sit here and be 17 and one. And if they don't win three games in three days in the Mountain West tournament, they're not going, which is the disappointing part because it's a great season and they can mean nothing if the Mountain West tournament goes poorly. No, and, and I think back to, I'm not going to remember the year, but there was a Colorado State team when Ryan Williams was really humming uh, with the Rams that I believe they, they lost in the tournament and they were something like 29-2 and two and didn't get in at large. And frankly, it was never really a consideration for them to get in at large because you know the Mountain West top to bottom just doesn't have the kind of strength uh, to compete with the power conferences in terms of being considered in the net ranking. But I brought that up for a reason, to say 79th in the net ranking. That's not a drag right. by any way to say 79th. That is a huge number uh, for UNLV to be considered that highly. I mean, that's the sort of thing where if UNLV didn't make the NCAA tournament, if they don't win the Mountain West tournament, you know, you look at them in a tournament like, you know, the the uh, women's and I team would say, yeah, like this is a team that is a contender to go out there and win the whole thing. They obviously have much bigger goals than that. But, you know, UNLV as a program, it has been more than 12 years since they were in a Mountain West final, not just win a Mountain West tournament, but to be in a Mountain West final. So the opportunity that's in front of them right now is certainly huge. And uh, Lindy LaRock seems to be setting a, a hell of a base for this program. Off the top of your head, those 12 years, do you know how many have been in Las Vegas? Of the tournaments? Yeah. Oh, all of those. How, they all have Vegas. been? Okay. No, that, that, all, that all predates Denver. Okay. Yeah. Because... Because it was in Denver that they went to the final. Okay. Because here's yeah. the thing. We hear it every year. It's usually San Diego State complaining about it because they love to complain about it on the men's side that the men get to host the Mountain West Tournament and how it's not fair that the Mountain West Tournament is in Las Vegas. Uh, if you're telling me they haven't been to a final since 2012, I, I the men, I think, are in the same exact thing. I don't think they've been. Oh, no, it's 2013. The men went to the final and lost in 2013. So Well, the, the we difference can, for UNLV is that the Thomas and Mac is truly the running Rebels' home floor. Yeah. Whereas the Cox Pavilion is the UNLV Lady Rebels' home floor. And frankly, a full Cox is a way better environment for UNLV than having that same 2,000 fans in the Thomas and Mac. Listen, I do need to correct you. It is not their home floor, Adam. They replaced the floor. Oh, God. Why didn't they say home court, <laughs> home baskets, home seats, home and not, no home banners either because they cover up the banners so that you can't and, look up and see the UNLV banners and they bring in a different PA guy. <laughs> it's not even the same building. You wouldn't even know. There's no chance they know whatsoever. So there's Lindy the Rock, Lady Rebels again. Uh, check them out if you want to. They are back home on February 12th against San Diego State. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Kira, are you telling me that I'm supposed to be able to hear Jared now? You're supposed to. Okay. Jared, are you there? Can you not hear me? You're, I, I can now. What you doing, Jared? Uh, I am trying to build a pop-up. Okay, just in time. What happened here? It's we're, the show's over. I'm aware. Okay, that did, that didn't you answer the question. You couldn't pick up credentials until eight, and then we got them, and we have a ton of crap, and I'm trying to set it up. 
Okay. Do you have anything else to add, or am I letting you go now? I, I have no... All I know is I'm echoing back in my, in my own head, it, and it's driving oh, make, me nuts. Like that's any different than any other day. <laughs> okay. Set up your pop-up, Jared. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. I'll text you. Okay. Scintillating. Wait, wait. Did you Scintillating. open your box? No, I have not opened my box. Oh, you're not going to do it on the air? No, I'm going to take it. It's massive. It probably won't even fit in my car. All right. Yeah. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, bye. Hopefully before the show's over. So there's Jared Justice, live from Radio Row, with what? six minutes left in the show. That was uh, riveting. It was. Wow. That was I'm riveting so content. Yeah. Right? I'm Me glad, too. Yeah. Uh, I'm absolutely glad we did that. What's in the, what's in the box, Tyler? What, what, what giant box has Jared left for you? Ooh, ooh, I know. But I'm not going to tell you. Okay. It's uh, my Christmas present, I guess, on February 7th. It's February 7th! <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um... I'm, I'm not opening it now. It's it's literally huge. I'm not opening it now. Why like how not? Like how large are we talking about? Like it's not going to fit in my car. No, it's gigantic. Like it's it's like yeah. four feet tall. Okay, all right. We we do need to eventually find this out though. Okay, I if I can get it in my car today, I I guess I'll open it at home. But that'll be, I'll you'll find out later in the week. I guess if not, you maybe you can open it at work. I mean, this is not complicated. Yes, but I don't. Then I open it, and then it can't get... I don't know. Whatever. It is very complicated because there's a giant four-foot box. I've got to find a way to get home. I don't know what to do with it. But I have a present for you, Adam. Or there uh, could sure be a present do. for you. How would you feel about Freddie Freeman as a present for the Yankees? John no, Heyman no, reported no. the Yankees are expected to take a run at Freddie Freeman, who they love. Though first base isn't their real need, they love to fit one of the game's best lefty hitters into their lineup. You don't want Freddie Freeman? No. Oh. God, no more old guys, please. <laughs> no more, like, it. it's like me trying to talk to women on a dating app. Like, no more old guys, please. <laughs> it's, it's The thing is, man, Freddie Freeman is going to be 32 this year. And the kind of deal it's going to take to get him away from the Atlanta Braves is the kind of deal that has hamstrung the Yankees over and over and over again. He is a big left-handed hitting first baseman. That might be great for the next year or two. And then he's going to get old, and then there are going to be four or five more years on that contract. If the Yankees are going to go get a first baseman, go trade for Matt Olson from the A's and get 80% of Freddie Freeman's production for a guy who's five years younger. Just don't go out there and hand out more 25 or $30 million contracts to guys who are going to age with that lack of grace that a big lumbering first baseman will. Are you surprised the Braves haven't, they didn't get the whole Freddie Freeman thing locked up before the lockout game? I am a little bit surprised, but only because of the fact that it seems so obvious for Freddie Freeman to go back there. But any franchise that wanted to kind of wait and see how the finances worked out before they decided to make a big commitment to a player doesn't really shock me in the end, right? Uh, the economics from all we've heard might be much more favorable to ownership because it seems like the players have no leverage during this lockout. So maybe the owners find themselves in a better spot to decide what they want to do in terms of spending. Maybe Atlanta decided that's the way they want to go. But yeah, it is surprising, especially coming off a World Series win. Yeah. So we'll see what Atlanta does. I'm now, I guess I'm hoping the Yankees get Freddie Freeman just so that you're upset about it. How was the National Funeral History Museum? I didn't go. I didn't go. I, I well, you had an entire day to I do know, nothing after the, after the Astros lost to the Braves. I so. attended a funeral for Game 6. I didn't feel like going to more funeral-related events. 
I'm telling you, there were there were way better options for how you could have spent that day in Houston <laughs> than you ultimately did. Where do you hope Carlos Correa ends up? Where do I hope? That's an easy question. The Astros. What do you mean? Oh, so where do you I want hope? you want him back? Okay, I was curious. Of course, oh, I was absolutely. curious if you wanted Carlos Correa back. Absolutely. The the whole reason to not want Carlos Correa is because you're afraid he's not going to be good when he's 35, which is seven years from now. Like. No, put him on the team. I'll worry about when he's 35, seven years from now. Yeah, so if the Yankees want to spend money on Carlos Correa, I'm all for it because I also know that would bring in... Well, the funny thing is, it would bring in this moral question for both of us, right? Because you would have to decide, can you cheer for Carlos Correa, Yankee? I would have to decide whether or not I need to let go of Trash Can Gate forever. I think it's harder for you because I just I I wouldn't cheer for him as a Yankee. I like Carlos Correa, but, oh, I'd, so, but I'd want him to strike out every single time. Is there anybody else in your life where if they put on a different shirt, you would hate them then? Oh, everybody. What do you mean? Everybody in my life, I would hate them. I'm just saying, like like you know, if you're you know, if your family someone puts on a different shirt, do you do you then not like them? That's nice. Carlos Correa going to the Yankees. You're assuming I like my family in the first place. Well, I, I you have told us that you are the butt of all the jokes, which yes, is hilarious. I was. Growing up, the butt of all the jokes. Not ideal. Not an ideal situation. Adam Candy, thank you so much for filling in today. Ed Graney out at the Super Bowl. Maybe we'll talk to Jared before 9.50 tomorrow.